0: <laughs> no, no, because last week you told me wait till five minutes tell, you know, wait till five minutes. <laughs> 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 Bill, now we can begin. Okay. <laughs> <All> right, <now. laughs> hmm. Good morning. I'm going to start by asking you to please do not forget what I asked you to do last week as we began this study. And if anybody listens to this afterwards on tape, I hope they will remember. Find yourself in this story. And I mean in the main characters of this story, who we've decided to call Phil, Moose, and Paul. Are you the victim? The offended individual, Phil? Or have you been the perpetrator, the offender, that culprit, rascal, runaway, moose? Alternatively, are you or have you been a brother or sister in Christ, in the body of Christ, put in a position to be reconciler, to be used by God to reconcile the offender to the offended, the perpetrator to the victim? And as I said last week, you are or will be at some time in your walk with Christ in a position similar to each of the persons in this story. If, and I suspect if you think back at your history, you will remember times when you were the victim and when you were the perpetrator. And hopefully you've had the chance to be the reconciler. Um, you also should know and remember from last week that the choices or options facing Phil, Moose, and Paul included some supernatural options or choices and you may have similar you will have similar circumstances where you will be called upon to make some supernatural choices. The scripture I talked about last week I couldn't remember it's in your I think it's in your notes today Hebrews 5 17 This is a scripture that defines Christian maturity. This is a definition, a working definition, and we'll come back to it during today's lesson. A scripture that defines Christian maturity. In Hebrews 5.17 it says, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice, to distinguish good from evil. We're inclined to think that Christian maturity, the deep things of God, are about spiritual gifts, great faith, supernatural miracles, such as were done by Elijah and Elisha. And while these manifestations are to be treasured, we should know that the ordinary miracles in the Christian life, if I can put it that way, ordinary miracles, involve having been trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil, and will only be doing good by the supernatural power that is in us as we are in Christ. So, find yourself in this story. The other theme I want to stress about our study of this little letter is that this real set of difficult circumstances in the early church provides us with a vivid illustration. The story is a vivid illustration of some basic principles of Christian community. And last week I read you a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's little book titled Life Together, and I told you I would provide that quote in your notes, and it is in your notes. But I want to read it again because it provides us some simple, don't pass over simple thoughts because very often they're very profound, and these are, about our life together with other believers. Bonhoeffer wrote, Christian community means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ, nothing more and nothing less. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means, first, that a Christian needs others for the sake of Jesus Christ. It means, second, that a Christian comes to others only through Jesus Christ. It means, third, that from eternity... We have been chosen in Jesus Christ, accepted in time, and united for eternity. Please don't pass by these basic principles quickly. Our life in Christ here in the 21st century will only fulfill God's call to love one another as Christ loved us to the extent we live out these basic principles. And living these principles out will honor God and as a result, and it, it will result in immeasurable blessings in our life, ultimately for God's glory. Let's read our text. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, sounds like that's all those people in the same house, doesn't it? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Heavenly Father, take this word and imprint it by the Holy Spirit in our hearts so that we don't look around and see this must apply to someone else. I'm okay in this arena. Lord, we're not okay in this arena. We're weak. Help us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name. First I want to place this letter with other letters Paul had written and that probably were being delivered all at the same time, interestingly. Apparently Moose was converted at about the same time that Paul had received word from Epaphras of the threat to the faith that had arisen at Colossae. So Paul entrusted Tychicus with the task of protecting Moose from arrest by slave catchers on the return journey to Colossae from Rome. We can. Take that from Colossians 7:9. 9. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts, and with him Onesimus, our friend Moose, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Tychicus was an anointed letter carrier. And we can see from Colossians 4.16 and Ephesians 6.21 and 22 that Tychicus, accompanied by Moose, was bringing letters to the Colossians, probably to the Laodiceans, and to the Ephesians. This hand delivery of letters to the Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon, and we don't have the letter to the Laodiceans, may have been accomplished on the same trip by Tychicus. We do know that the letters to the Colossians and to Philemon were probably carried at the same time maybe with Ephesians as well since both Tychicus and our friend Moose are mentioned in both letters as having been together at the delivery of the letter. And you saw from the map last week, and and if you look at geography and a map in your Bibles, you will see that it would seem to indicate that Tychicus and Moose would have come first to Ephesus, which was close to the sea, then to Laodicea, then to Colossae, and Phil's house church, which was that was in Colossae. Paul's letters were intended to be circulated and read to the assembled companies of believers when they met for worship. in, in fact, in his first letter to the Thessalonians, I think this scripture's in your notes, Paul issued an apostolic command, if you will, that his letter to that church be read to the assembled believers. He wrote, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the believers. It was the purpose of these letters, to build up the church, to strengthen them, to correct them, to teach them. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 of our little letter from Paul to Phil. First of all, Paul introduces himself as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Think of the climate or environment by the way we need to be careful when we communicate with one another I just have to throw that in and Paul was being very careful with this communication think of the climate or environment that Paul creates by introducing himself as a prisoner for Christ Jesus first there's an implication about God do you you get the implication and his sovereign work in Paul's imprisonment and in what Paul is about to tell Philemon. Paul knew God was in control. And second here, Paul is setting up a contrast, a subtle contrast, between his God-ordained suffering under Roman house arrest and the relatively trifling sacrifice that he was asking Phil to make. Phil would have to consider, as he considered Paul's requests of him, that Paul was in prison writing with his hands probably bound in chains, dictating and then signing at the end. There's an interesting contrast between this introduction and the introduction in Colossians, the letter that Phil would have received at the same time because he was the he was the leader of the house church at Colossae. Look at the difference. In Colossians Paul introduces himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Here, he chooses prisoner to identify himself. The use of this identifier, I believe, has many subtle purposes. One author, one writer has said that this title is a designation which would touch his friend's heart. But since Paul, remember, considers his imprisonment for the sake of the gospel ministry to be an honor, I don't think it was Paul seeking Phil's sympathy. Instead, it would seem that Paul is preparing Phil to consider the naturally difficult actions of forgiveness and reconciliation, actions called for by the example of none other than Jesus Christ and his call to love one another, the highest commandment after loving God. anybody here can identify with the naturally difficult actions of forgiveness and reconciliation i've been confronted with that just this week and i suspect you are confronted with that as well as best we can tell paul was never in colossi If you read the letter to the Colossians, it seems to have been written based on Epaphras' reports to Paul in prison. But Philemon, who lived in Colossae, must have been drawn to Christ as he listened to Paul preach in Ephesus several years before, where he must have also met Timothy, Paul's co-laborer, who also ministered, I think, even after Paul left Ephesus. The fact that verse 1 tells us that the greetings are also coming from Timothy, serves to remind Phil of the fact that fellow believers are bound together in bonds of brotherhood. Paul's other words of greeting remind Phil that he belongs to a community of mutual love patterned on the self-giving love of Christ. So Phil will be encouraged to extend the same love to the untrustworthy, untrustworthy, formerly untrustworthy runaway slave, that thief, Moose. The mention of our, our brother, Timothy, also serves to encourage the readers of this letter to recognize this isn't just a private, personal letter. It is that, but it's more. It's a letter for the whole church to read. Paul and his co-worker Timothy are addressing Christian life together as part of the wider gospel ministry. Phil would know Timothy, and Paul is invoking Timothy's endorsement to add weight to what Paul will be asking Phil to do. And by describing Timothy as our brother, there is no question Paul is reminding Phil that believers are related to one another as brothers and sisters under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul calls Phil our beloved fellow worker. And as a fellow worker, Philemon shares in the common task of witnessing to the gospel by everything he does. We have that same status. Paul is reminding Phil by saying our beloved fellow worker that Phil is loved by Paul, by Timothy, by many other Christians, and most importantly by God himself. He's beloved. This paves the way for Paul's emphasis in this letter on love, an emphasis that permeates this letter. And the use of fellow worker to describe Phil is also a reminder to Phil that they participate together in this common ministry. This also is a foundation for the supernatural action that Paul will ask our brother Phil to take. In verse 2, Paul expands the list of recipients of the letter to Aphia, Archippus, and the church in your house. There's no doubt however that Phil is still the main recipient of this letter. But adding these other individuals and the whole local church further indicates that even though Phil is the primary target the letter was for public consumption for our consumption no doubt others in that household church had been adversely affected by Moose's theft and departure and as a secondary as secondary recipients they're also being called upon to forgive and be reconciled Afia was likely Phil's wife most people believe and as such she would have had some responsibility to supervise the duties of household slaves her own response to Paul's request, would have been important. And notice he uses the terminology, our sister, Aphia. Focuses our attention on Aphia's relationship in the body of Christ, maybe even more than, he doesn't mention that he's her wife, we're making that supposition, but we are told she's a sister in the body of Christ. Now we don't really know what role Archippus had in the covenant group, but uh, but he was probably a co-leader, and he may have even been Phil's son. We don't know. But he's called our fellow soldier. Paul calls him our fellow soldier. He's a fellow soldier with myself and with Timothy. So we know he also had a role in the ministry of this local house church, and if that was if that's doubted anyway he's also referred to in the accompanying letter to the colossians and in colossians 4:17 he is called on to fulfill the ministry that you have received in the lord again phil is the primary target of this letter because as leader of this house church and as owner of moose he would have the power to decide whether to read this letter to the others as we talked about last week we have it so we know he didn't throw it in the fireplace but there's no doubt this is a message to the entire local church and extended today to us we can also see with all these specific and careful greetings why this letter would be open to the entire church and not just for private reading the church apparently met at phil's house and because the church met at phil's house the believers who met there would know the whole story about the formerly useless rascal Moose. This is the congregation of believers who would have to welcome Moose as a brother. They would know the whole story. You know how these stories get translated, passed from mouth to mouth and expanded upon? You're familiar with that phenomenon. They were called upon as well. They needed to be persuaded as well to receive, be reconciled to and forgive Moose. No doubt some of these people who met at Phil's house were also slaves to whom Moose would have to be reconciled. These greetings emphasize a point we all need to take to our hearts. We really are in this life together. The greeting continues in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this greeting, commonly found in many of Paul's letters, is not just window dressing. It's heartfelt. Other than Paul's letters, the typical Greek letter in the first century would be, the greetings would typically be greetings and peace. They did use the word peace, although it didn't have quite the same connotation that Paul is giving this. It would be greetings and peace, but Paul's greetings Grace and peace speak of the work of salvation. Both are what we call salvific words. Paul prays that they may enjoy and revel in the grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ that accompany salvation. The source of these coveted blessings, grace and peace, we have to be acknowledged. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. We know that. And peace is what we can only know and feel when we have received that unmerited favor and its fruits, including forgiveness, adoption, reconciliation to God, freedom from sin's bondage. There is no grace unless God gives it. And there is no real peace unless it flows from God's reconciliation with sinful men and women because of the cross. And again, notice our Father a familial word. Paul is using that word our to emphasize once again that he is addressing relationships within the household of God. Phil, being a brother, should as a result treat even his own slave as a brother. This theme is going to reappear over and over again in these little 25 verses. And this is no accident. It's what the Holy Spirit wants to communicate. Verse 4 begins A prayer that runs through verse 7 and it introduces ideas that Paul will repeat in this short letter. Repetition with a purpose. Paul doesn't congratulate Phil on acting like a Christian. He thanks God for Phil and Phil's spirit-empowered actions. It is God who causes Phil to act as he does. And as we'll see, Paul also thanks God for what God is going to do in Phil's heart and life. Paul has heard good reports about Phil and the rest of the Colossian church, and Paul is glad that Phil is active in his love for all the saints. Paul knows that this love for all the saints comes from the faith given as a gift to Phil by the Holy Spirit. And Paul is glad because he is about to ask Phil for a further demonstration of that love. A love that he has heard characterizes Phil's relationship to all the saints. And when Paul says, I thank my God always... He is making it clear, you know, sometimes we can say things like that, it's just an exaggeration. I don't think that was an exaggeration, I think this was Paul's life. And he's making it clear that for Paul, this thanksgiving isn't just a matter of polite etiquette, it's a matter of worship. Now, we might just dismiss thanks to God for other believers as something small, not something, that b- not something that big or that important, but in God's economy, thankfulness for what God has done in us and for us by means of the believing community we are part of is extremely important. Let me resort again to something written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Life Together on this subject. Quoting your notes he said in the christian community thankfulness is just what it is anywhere else in the christian life only he who gives thanks for little things receives the big things we prevent god from giving us the great spiritual gifts he has in store for us because we do not give thanks for daily gifts we think we dare not to be satisfied not be satisfied we think we dare not be satisfied with the small measure of spiritual knowledge, experience, and love that has been given to us, and that we must constantly be looking forward eagerly for the highest good. We pray for the big things and forget to give thanks for the ordinary small, and yet really not small, gifts. If we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even where there is no great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith, and difficulty, almost have to... It, When I read this, I'm convicted. Instead of thankfulness for the small things we have in each other, aren't we more prone to complain about the weaknesses that we see? If, on the contrary, we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from what we expected, then we hinder God from uh, letting, I think, I hope that's corrected in your notes. I corrected it about 10 times and it keeps saying letter. From letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches which are there for us all in Jesus Christ. And he went on to speak of fellowship. He wrote, The more thankfully we daily receive what is given to us, the more surely and steadily will fellowship increase and grow from day to day as God pleases. Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize as though it was our work to do. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. This lesson, learned and taught by Brother Dietrich, was known and practiced by Paul. For Paul, there's a direct connection between acts of thanksgiving and remembrance. They're both acts of worship toward God. That language that's translated in the ESV, when I remember you, that's here in our text, can literally be translated, when I make remembrance of you. Paul is appealing to God to remember the faithfulness of his readers, particularly Phil, and in turn, those reading this letter are to remember God with their own faithful acts. All of this is worship. Now let me chase a little rabbit trail here, looking at verse 5. Before I do that, let me go back because I got to confess something. We were here Friday night for prayer and worship, and um, Paul, uh, it was laid on my heart to pray, and I failed to fully pray what God called upon me to pray. And, And I have no excuse. It just wasn't, it was just something that slipped out of my mind. But it was this we were talking about the glory of God. We're talking about how it's reflected in other believers, as it is, increasingly. And what l- the Lord laid on my heart to pray, I didn't fully pray, which was how grateful and thankful, but I'll say it here now, I am for the evidence of grace that shines, that is God's glory shining out of you guys and others in this body. I'm thankful for that. And I want to express thankfulness for that. Why don't we express that thankfulness more? Why don't I? Well, that's... Now let me chase the rabbit. Verse 5. One commentary I read, which I loved. Turned out he wasn't quite right, but I loved it anyway. (laughs) As you'll see, connects that word... It's a strange little sentence there. Connects... The words faith and love with both objects, the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And as I was reading that commentary, the author indicated that the word faith here could be translated loyalty. And I, I love that because that word's been on my mind for, for a while. <clears throat> and that Paul, by the Holy Spirit, was saying that he thanked God for Phil's faith, loyalty, and Phil's love toward all the saints. And by the same token, Paul was saying that he thanked God for Phil's faith, loyalty, or faithfulness, and Phil's love toward the Lord Jesus. Well, my Greek scholar friend, Evan May, tells me that this is probably not exactly what was intended. And that was confirmed by all the other commentaries I wrote. What was probably intended was that Paul was thanking God for Phil's faith toward the Lord Jesus, and for the resulting love toward all the saints. And I'm going to bow to Evan's superior knowledge of the Greek. However, this started me thinking about something I want to share with you, and that is the diminished meaning as English-speaking Americans that we attribute to that little overused word, love. I won't try to elaborate a lot, but I am convinced that this word, love, needs to be thought of more broadly than we tend to think of it not just some romantic feeling. It's not a feeling divorced from actions at all. One of the actions we're called to exercise toward one another in this life together, and Evan confirms that this is acceptable, so I'm gonna go with it. One of the actions we are called upon to exercise toward one another in this life together is loyalty. Not blind loyalty, but loving loyalty or faithfulness that causes us to act for one another's benefit at every opportunity, no matter the difficulty it might personally cause me, no matter the cost to us personally. There are many other descriptive words embraced within that word love, but I'm convinced loyalty is one of them. In verse 6, Paul is continuing his prayer, and it turns from thanksgiving to petition that Phil would be more and more effective to teach and disciple those he is responsible for, so that they would grow in their knowledge of God. Do we truly know fully all of the benefits that we have because of christ in us the hope of glory that's what he's saying i want to pray that you know that more and more paul is praying that phil would be increasingly effective in understanding and then in conveying the knowledge of all of god's will not an abstract knowledge but the kind of knowledge that enables those believers to lead a life that is faithful to the gospel because Our actions, if they're going to be supernatural, have to be based on God-given faith to step out in faith. This life that is faithful to the gospel will be a life that produces works of love like the work of love that Paul is about to challenge Phil to engage in. And all of this will be for the sake of Christ. We can easily see how this great old missionary evangelist Paul is warming Phil's heart up for what he will ask him to do the love that Paul writes to Phil about only comes from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ there can be no other source for this faith an active faith the kind of faith that does not consist of some theoretical enlightenment this faith is a concrete knowledge of the good which God desires believers to do faith comes by hearing the Word of God And the Holy Spirit wants us to hear this word of God fully so that we can act with that kind, so that we can have that kind of faith that produces these kinds of actions. Faith is a concrete knowledge of the good which God desires believers to do and the works that God has prepared in advance for believers to do. And Paul is preparing Phil for the request that follows so he doesn't have to demand that Phil do good. But he prays that Phil will do good as a result of what Phil is empowered to do by the gift of faith dropped into Phil's heart by God. And Paul is suggesting here that by acting out the works that were first acted out by God in Christ, Phil will be drawn even closer to Christ-likeness. And then Paul mentions in his prayer the great joy and comfort that he received when he first heard the report about Phil's great love that had refreshed the hearts of the saints. I can imagine that when Moose was converted and then confessed his sin against Phil, Paul probably asked Moose about Phil and what Phil was like. And to Paul's great joy and comfort, Paul had heard great reports about Phil's walk with God, probably even from this runaway slave. Phil's love, it was reported, had been expressed actively in some very specific ways. One of those ways was evidenced by the result that the hearts of the saints had been refreshed. We're going to see this word refresh show up again in verse 20. This is an active faith and an active love, and its effect is to result in refreshing other believers. John Piper Uh, I found this little quote from him commenting on this concept of Philemon's refreshing actions toward other saints. He says, Philemon was a refreshing person. When Paul thought about Philemon, he thought about the joy and comfort Philemon had given him and others. Doesn't that make you want to be like Philemon? Don't you want to be a joy and a comfort to others? In this dry and weary land, don't you want to be an oasis of living water for parched saints? The ministry of refreshment is so important to Jesus that he wants us to know the reward for those who give it. It makes sense to believe, and I'm going to speculate a little bit here, but uh, I think it has a solid foundation, my speculation. You can throw it over your shoulder. You can throw this away if you don't want to accept it. But uh, I think Phil was a man of some wealth. It also makes sense that Phil had even used his wealth to minister to the needs of fellow believers in crises based on what Paul's description about what he had heard and knew about Phil's active faith and active love. Now, am I reaching a little bit there? Maybe. But I know this. Active faith, very often when it expresses itself in ministry to others, Often, you can see it. Let me say it this way. If, it, if somebody's pocketbook is touched by God, you're going to see other things reflected in that person's life that are active faith. That's free. Take it or leave it. But the very hearts of the saints had been refreshed through Phil and his acts of love in the past. And this word hearts, ref, and it's repeated over and over again, very hearts, refers to the inner parts, literally, we don't like it, but it could be translated. I don't think any translator really is willing to do this, but all of them say this when you look behind what the, bowels, that's what this is talking about. <coughs> the inner parts of these saints. Getting ahead of today's text a little bit, this word heart appears three times in this little letter. And one writer explains, and I thought this was interesting, uh, three times this use of very hearts. And one writer explains it this way. He says, taken together, they constitute a syllogism that is itself the touchstone of Paul's argument. If Philemon refreshes the very hearts of the saints, verse 7, and if Onesimus is St. Paul's very heart, verse 12, then to refresh Paul's very heart, Philemon must refresh Onesimus. Very heart. Now we've looked at the text, now let's look at the themes of this this section of text, verses 1 through 7, uh, and come to some conclusions that will affect our application of the text, finding ourselves in this story. First, There's a theme that runs through this that we need to apply, the household of God. The first thing Paul does is to draw Phil and his local church leaders and members to think about the relationship between themselves and God. Our text highlights the need to recognize the reality that has come into being for Phil and the church by the gospel of Jesus Christ that reality is shown as more real than their natural lives because they are one in Jesus Christ, the family of God drawn together in community. That community is through and in Jesus Christ, no more, no less. In preparation for what Paul is going to ask Phil to do related to Moose, Paul wanted to make sure that the foundational truths of who they are in Christ in relationship to one another is crystal clear. I grew up in church. Really, I grew up in this church, but (laughs) before that I grew up in another church. In the church that I grew up with as a teenager, it was very common to refer to each other, all the time, and some of you have this common experience, brother and sister. Very common. We do that somewhat as well now, not nearly as much as I grew up hearing in church. I quickly add that I was guilty often of using those terms mindlessly without the meaning that those terms should have. Whether or not we adopt kinship terminology in referring to one another, and I think it would be refreshing if we did, the truth is clear and has more than surface meaning. We are kinfolks in Christ. In our text, what would seem to be a personal and private matter is transformed by the truth and by the Holy Spirit into a matter that engages and involves the entire body of Christ, local and extra-local. This is because Paul, by the Holy Spirit, obviously knew that the impact of the gospel fundamentally affects all social units. Paul addresses Timothy as our brother. He addresses the recipients as our beloved co- recipient as our beloved co-worker, our sister, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house all of this has the effect of making what we might think of as a personal and private matter instead a matter that impacts an entire Christian household and the wider church explicitly recognizing that Jesus the Lord is Lord of all household relationships are emphasized in this little letter over and over the Heavenly Father is our father and Phil himself is addressed in verse 1 as our beloved fellow worker, and in verse 7 as my brother. And later in verse 9 and verse 10, Paul describes himself as old man and moose as <laughs> and moose as my child. Commentator David Powell simply states it this way. Through kinship language, Paul points to the significance of the household of God as the primary frame of reference within which decisions must be made. He continues, this discussion is not simply an abstract academic exercise, rather it points to a critical frame of reference wherein concrete actions are to be carried out. In finding ourselves in this story, are we willing to apply this reality of the household of God to our own lives? Our Western ideas of individualism work against a faithful application of these truths. We might, While we might sometimes apply this household of God mentality to our own nuclear family, our fleshly mothers, fathers, siblings, and maybe aunts, uncles, and cousins, it might end there, if it even starts there for some of us but that would be to live beneath the blessing of christian community that god has called us to enjoy Um, david powell again i want to quote him he says this better than i can he said i think this is in your notes we should acknowledge that size can affect the degree to which a church functions like a familial unit with accountability and other more intimate practices but larger ch- churches would do well to implement smaller communal units within the greater church to model such behaviors. One of the main hindrances to this household of faith is the western ideal of individualism and self-sufficiency, both of which are challenged by this letter. The second theme of this, these seven verses are faith and love. We've talked a little bit about this already, but these words and these qualities, faith and love, are inseparable in the life together we are called to share. There's no question that this little letter from Paul to Phil is an appeal based on love. But this isn't just some general sentiment of kindness. This is a love that is based on the prior actions of Jesus Christ. Actions that members of the household of God appropriate through faith. Actions that are transformed by being united with the lover of our souls who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We can see that our brother Phil, as one who has experienced God's love through the redemptive work of Christ on the cross, is beloved by Paul, is beloved by all the saints, is beloved by God, and that's in reverse order. He's beloved by God, by all the saints, and by Paul. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, made this connection, clearly, between the love of God and the love of his children, when he responded to a question about, what's the great commandment? Lord? Rabbi? First, he quoted Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, love God. And then he added Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18, love neighbor. You can find that in Matthew 22, 36 through 40. The connection between faith and love is foundational to this letter. We need to find ourselves in this story. We're called to live out the necessary love reality that this faith affirms. We're called to live out a gospel that transforms our self-centered lives into ones that worship God, loving others as fellow members of the household of God. The final theme that we see in this seven verses is a theme of partnership and relationships. It should be clear by now to us that we are all joined together with Paul, with Phil, with Moose, with the local Colossian church, and a host of witnesses described in Hebrews 11 into one common partnership, gospel ministry. That's what the prayer time this morning was about. Get the prayer targets if you weren't here. We're called to one common gospel ministry, all of us, each one of us, together. We're in a partnership, and we're in relationship for that purpose, and part of that is how we relate to each other. The Greek word koinonia appears in verse 6. That is one word that describes this relationship we have as partners in this common calling. We participate in the same gospel ministry with the same goal for the sake of Christ. We share the same calling by Christ for His kingdom. That common calling and our relationships provide many, many opportunities for personal growth and sanctification. We are all called to be witnesses to God's acts in history. The history we are living together right now. Yesterday's history. Last week is history. And we're called to be witnesses to God's acts in history. The history we're living out right now. The forms of this partnership include prayer, financial support, personal evangelism, personal counseling, mutual... But let me stop there. We, we very often would stop there. Prayer, financial support, personal evangelism, personal counseling. Oh, that's ministry. Just as much or more is the ministry of mutual forgiveness. Reconciliation with others in the body of Christ obedience and submission to the particular call of God to be trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I hope we get that. By constant practice in our life together, that's how we will mature to be more like Jesus Christ. That's how it's going to happen. We learn to distinguish and discern between good and evil in what we say to our neighbor today, tomorrow, the next day. That's how we mature in Christ. That's how we become more like Him. The reason that difficult person, family member perhaps, is in your life is to give you an opportunity to practice Discerning good and evil and mature into Christ-likeness. Do you have anybody in your life that serves that purpose? This is serious. It's funny, but it's serious. That's what we're called upon to do and be. Heavenly Father, once again, my words are inadequate. By your Holy Spirit, convict each of us to find ourselves in this story and to live out what Paul is calling upon Phil to live out in light of the amazing grace we have been shown to be reconciled to God through the act of a man on our behalf And may we not shrink back from understanding that that difficult relationship or relationships in our lives are for the purpose of giving us an opportunity to be molded into the image of our Lord, to be more like Him, so that we might more and more and more reflect His glory in a lost world. Lord, may may that happen as we find ourselves and apply these truths to us, to our own selves. Starting with me, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.